Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We want to, you know, really invest in people. And so we try to measure how we're doing. One of the things I like to measure is how high our turnover rate is. You know, if we're doing our job, it should be really, really low. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome to episode 39 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I'm so glad that you've chosen this episode to fill your ears with today. I promise you won't be disappointed. We're going to continue our trip down memory lane this week, and it might be more like a Back to the Future style episode this time for Suncast. Today, I'm launching what I call the Solar Pioneers series, and I am honored and super excited to have the first in this series be with none other than Mr. Solar Sugar Magic, Mr. Dan Sugar himself, the CEO of Next Tracker, and one of the most successful folks I know in the solar biz. This conversation diverges from my typical interview format, but is nonetheless packed with information on how one of our industry leaders thinks about starting and scaling a solar business. And along the way, we touch on Dan's roots as an engineer and researcher and how that has influenced his career path and leadership style, the three keys to growth of any startup, the practical side of institutionalizing a corporate culture that is both aggressive and forgiving, empowering yet accountable, fun, fast-paced with industry-leading low turnover, Dan's thoughts on squeezing even more power out of PV power plants, including machine learning, and so much more. So while we didn't get into a hot or not, or book recommendations, or even his bold prediction, you'll want to stick all the way through to the end of this episode, especially if you have any interest at all into peering inside of the mind and thought process of a guy who's built some of our industry's most iconic brands and largest power plants. You know, just by listening to this I already know that you're one of the rare individuals who invests in themselves and is never satisfied with the status quo. It's my hope that Suncast delivers massive value for you and that each week you take something away that can concretely help you build your company or career and get to the next level of scale and impact. So thank you for showing up. If there are specific things that you'd like to hear more of, please let me know. I can't do this without you and I want to help solve your problems. So if you have someone or something that you think should be on Suncast, shoot me an email. Hit me up on LinkedIn or pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your smartphone. That website is, of course, mysuncast.com. And the email is nico at mysuncast.com. And one last thing. I am so grateful for those who choose to collaborate with Suncast. And this episode is brought to you in partnership with soulrates.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. 
if you have projects over 100,000 in value and you'd like to see how Soul Rates can help you quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal to your customers, please reach out to me directly for an invitation code to join the platform. Did I mention it's free? All right. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast and the first in our Solar Pioneers series with the Sultan of Solar himself, Dan Sugar. Today on Suncast, I have the honor of hanging out with one of our industry's truly iconic and seasoned founders. Dan Sugar is, indeed, a seasoned business executive with proven skills at building world-class companies and delivering strong financial results. In a career that spans more than 28 years, Dan and his teams have delivered over 700 projects, well over 10 gigawatts of PV to the world. He's also one of the lucky few to have had an exit, not once, but twice, with exit values that exceed $600 million. Today we'll dig into Dan's passion for renewable energy technology and how empowering a mission-focused and thrilling culture has allowed him to achieve such great heights. He is truly one of our industry's movers and shakers and worthy of the title Pioneer. Dan, it's really an honor to have you on Suncast, brother. Oh, Nicholas, I really appreciate it. That's an honor and, uh, you know, really loving what you're doing with Suncast and how you're building this out and sharing best practices and stories about how we can build great companies to make money, make the world a better place, enhance shareholder value. I think we can do it all, create jobs all at the same time. And so for me, it's about winning across the board. Well, there's a lot that we're going to cover today, but one of the things I noticed when I first walked into your office, and thanks for hosting me at your office here in Fremont. One of the first things I noticed was a guitar in the corner. It reminds me that you're a huge fan of rock and roll. You're not just a huge fan of rock and roll, but you actually have uh, on occasion been known to get on a stage. Is that right? Music is one of my passions. And yeah, I am currently performing. I've been in a band, a Santa Cruz band. We do a lot of uh, uh, groove-oriented classic rock. But, you know, actually what I'd like to share with you about the whole guitar thing is how it started for me. So when I was 16 years old, I had a lot of energy, as many 16-year-olds do. It wasn't focused uh, very much. (laughs) And I had commented to my dad. I said, hey, Dad, you know, I think I might want to learn how to play guitar. And my dad was from the South, and he basically said, hey, son, he goes, get in the car. We're going to the music store. And so... He immediately responded to my expression of interest by providing me a guitar. It wasn't expensive. Mm -hmm. It was a very, you know, basic beginner guitar. And that has ended up being, you know, a tremendous joy in my life. The way musically one interacts with other people playing in particular live, but in any setting is, is amazing. But... You know, what I really took away from that was the lesson my father taught me is when a young person or anybody aspiring anything actually, you know, expresses uh, interest or desire to explore something, you know, you do your best to make it available. And, you know, maybe four out of five times it doesn't stick, Mm -hmm. but one out of five it, it will. And then you can go, then they can take it further. And so, you know, I've tried to bring my learnings from my father to my sons and also in a bigger context to folks at work that express interest in 
um, developing something, uh, you know, at the company, and you try to, if, if people have an idea or have enthusiasm or show initiative, try to make it available, and then it may not work out, maybe over half the time it doesn't, but it certainly won't if you don't, if you don't support it. So with guitar, for me, it always comes back to that story. Yeah. How many, uh, how many guitars have you accumulated over the years? Well, I don't collect anything else. Let me just start with that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I sort of have this agreement with my wife, right? <laughs> she doesn't collect anything, except she has a nice wardrobe. Yeah. And, you know, my, my thing is guitars. So, yeah, I really like beautifully handcrafted American guitars yeah. in particular. And um, it's funny, my, my wife will say, well, which guitar do you like best? And I, the answer is usually, it's whatever the one I'm playing at that instant I, is, because I fall in love with these wonderful instruments yeah. and the, the, the beautiful sounds you get. How do you decide which one you're gonna take to your show on tomorrow night, for example? It's a tough call. It's a really tough call. I, I actually struggle with it. I actually usually want to take multiple guitars because you know, it, it, it enhances the experience. But, you know, in moments of rare restraint, I usually <laughs> cut myself back to one. Um, wow. So anyway, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I appreciate the insight in, uh, in regard to specifically uh, how you got into playing guitars. I have a similar story uh, of my parents enabling me through the gift of music yeah. uh, most of my life. Uh, I, in fact, many people don't know this, but I had uh, my, my first career was in music. I wow. was in the music industry until I was... Uh, until I decided to go to the Peace Corps, which is kind of how I got into Latin America and, uh, and ultimately led back to uh, the solar industry. So I have an affinity for, uh, I, I found myself wanting to pick up your guitar and play it while, I, while you were- Well, you're more you were, than welcome. While you were ra roaming the halls. But, uh, but again, in a rare moment of restraint, as you put it, I, uh, I was able to, uh, to withstand, but I do want to open that case and see what's in it at some point during, this, uh, during our, our fun today. You mentioned pre-interview that you grew up in New York and you went to Rensselaer, and I know that from my just knowing you in the industry that you not only bring an incredible amount of business acumen, but one of the things that has created a particular stronghold for you in your career is an engineering background. How and why did you choose to go into engineering, and how did that ultimately impact your trajectory? Yeah, well, I, I also, I grew up, you know, you say New York, people think New York City. I grew up in upstate New York. You know, it was very uh, down-to-earth neighborhood. You know, we mowed our own lawns, we painted our own houses, you know, we took care of our own cars and all that. And so that's how we grew up. And so, you know, very sort of hands-on, you know, if there's a problem, you solve it kind of thing. And in a uh, kind of a small town as a suburb of Albany, New York. And so, actually, my brother was going to uh, study electrical engineering at Rensselaer and, uh, you know, um, exposed me to that. And if it weren't for my brother, I probably wouldn't have studied engineering. I actually thought about going into music, but I thought that it was something special. I wanted to keep that um, so I didn't have to depend on that for a livelihood, but to keep it as a, in, a, in a, its own place. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I studied electrical engineering and... Um, the way I got to California was um, I was in the power engineering uh, program at, at RPI, and PG&E actually actively recruited out there. And I had the wonderful fortune in the summer of 85 that one of the managers of the electric transmission planning of PG&E, who also was an RPI alumni, he was back there, and I ended up with a summer job in 85. And I really knew nothing about California. I drove my car out here. I, had, I was 
worked the summer in transmission planning. At the end of that, they offered me a position. I came back in 86 and started working in, in transmission planning and, and uh, substation operations. Now, the beautiful thing about entering the power industry there is you're right between generation and distribution, at least generation as it was known 30 years yeah. ago. And it was an awesome time to be there. And so you, we did things like uh, run power flow programs where you model the system and you understand how the system works, like what happens if a big transmission line goes down and how the grid responds to that and so forth. And it was, it was an, a very interesting time because PG&E had just finished a big build out of the grid and uh, actually Diablo Canyon was just coming online. So here's a kind of fast forward. So when I started in my, my 20s at PG&E then, um, half of PG&E's net income was to pay for the interest for the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. What? So just to pay for the interest of construction. So this plant had been under construction for wow. a long time, certainly north of a dozen wow. years. Way over budget, yeah. there were a lot of issues, blah, blah. Um, you know, later it was discovered on a fault line. Okay, fine, so they finally got this plant built. They actually built a pump storage to go with it. It's called Helms Pump Storage, which I've actually visited. And anyway, so here we are, fast forward to today. The plant's paid for. People think of, hey, nuclear has, you know, very high capital costs, but, you know, the fuel costs are super low. Well, as folks know that are following this, just the operating costs of running Diablo Canyon are too expensive to keep running. So it's scheduled for premature closure in the approximately five or six years. Wow. So here we are where you know renewables have gotten to the point where even to just operate some of these conventional power plants is not economic. So basically, I, I worked in this great ecosystem for a few years and then had the wonderful fortune of having an opportunity to work in the R&D group at PG&E. I went out there and, and started working in 1988 in solar. Uh, PG&E at the time was building um, the largest R&D project for solar and other stuff um, in the country in partnership with the U.S. Department of Energy. It was called PVOSA. Mm -hmm. So we put out in the field everything you see today, like trackers and mm. Copper and diselenide and you know gallium arsenide concentrators. Who were some silicon. of the big names at that time? Arco Solar and who else? Yeah, so you had Arco, true. Um, prior to them going to Siemens, prior to them going to right, so five other companies. Yeah, um, you know you had uh, Solarex, which was a division of um, of Amico, uh -huh. and uh, prior to their merger uh, with BP. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, you, you know, a number of these major mobile solar. Yeah. So you had these, you know, the oil companies have, <laughs> it's been a bit of a pendulum, you know, uh, over the years. It's like, you know, they start as oil companies and it's like, hey, we're an energy company. The pendulum swings and it goes back to, no, let's go back to basics being an oil company. I mean, Shell is back in renewables now for, right. I think, the third time. Yeah. So, which is welcome. I think, you know, basically uh, the sort of writings on the wall that they need to really start to um, expand and really make these other energy uh, you know, uh, categories as, as mainstream contributors to their financials. So mm -hmm. 
that those were who were, were involved then. Mm. And you guys are building this test bed in the late 80s mm-hmm. that would rival uh, from a testing perspective a lot of uh, a lot of the facilities that Fraunhofer and uh, Arizona State and others are building now and probably even what you guys have here as the Center for PV Excellence, right? What did you What did you learn in your early career from that experience? Yeah, I think data is really important, and so we there was uh, utility grade metering and data we were collecting and then per- measuring performance of these systems over a long period of time mm-hmm. and evaluating how adjustments to the systems really impacted the bottom line energy performance. So data mattered. We published a lot of papers. So I ended up managing the, the solar and distributed technologies research group at PG&E there uh, with some amazing people. And we had an incredible group of people that ended up being leaders in the industry. Uh, one of my closest friends, Howard Wenger, who uh, until very recently was president over at SunPower, he and I have worked together through our careers. Was um, he at pg e with you? He was at PG&E, wow. yes. I didn't and then that. later he was vice president he actually, pro bono, wrote the first net metering bill with Tom Stars. I helped from an advocacy standpoint. Then later he became a vice president of sales at AstroPower. We were their largest customer. He left there and uh, joined us at PowerLight. And you know, at that point in 2003 and 2004, we developed the world's first 10 megawatt project that had ever been done. We did it in Germany, Germany. with a horizontal tracker. We yeah. commercialized horizontal tracking yeah. at scale. And, um, you know, that was our first system at 1,000 volts, our first system in Europe. And, you know, we signed the contract. And if we didn't get it done, the company would have been long gone. Yeah. But we executed on that. So Howard Winger was at Powerlight? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. He's I don't know how I didn't know that. Amazing, amazing person and an amazing solar executive. Before we, because I definitely want to spend some time on Powerlight. Before we do that, you know, you have been one of, I would say, one of the greatest sales guys in our industry in the last decade, maybe in the last 20 years, um, certainly with Powerlight. You were chief sales guy, right? You built the you built the sales team as well as all the stuff that you and, uh, and the founding team did for technology. How do you feel your experience getting started, not, on, not just with the engineering background, but understanding the core fundamentals of power? Like forget solar and mm-hmm. renewables, how did your core understanding of how power works and how the utilities think and how municipalities think influence your sales techniques and your sales process? Sure, happy to speak to that. Well, I think you really have to, from where I'm standing, like in this industry, I mean, yes, I've done a lot of commercial work, but actually if you look at my job title and things reporting to me throughout my career, I've actually run operations, a mm-hmm. lot of operations. I've run sales departments right. um, and marketing departments, but I do a lot of ops. Okay. And so, you know, you kind of, the reason I think someone's effective is, you know, the client has a need and you really understand what the need is and then right. are, are articulating a solution and why what you're proposing is going to help and why they should believe you're going to be there you know, when problems arise, as they always do. You know, I think in the grid, you know, we've been carrying the tracker flag, I, you know, since the 80s. And so from a grid guy's standpoint, you know, I'm like, hey, this thing like better matches the utility load curve. I mean, right now, holy cow, talk about, you know, victim of our own success. You know, we finally like <laughs> really have knocked the peak down by over five gigawatts in mm-hmm. California, the day peak, where it's starting to be like, hey, you know, gee, we really need to, 
figure out how to further keep ameliorating the peak in California. But up until, you know, we were doing things like analyzing how the solar generation matched with the low duration curve on, you know, utility, both at a system level and a local area planning level. And then when we were selling the utilities, really talking up those values, we had a multiplier that was added to when solicitations were done for RFPs for the renewable portfolio standards Mm -hmm. five, eight years ago. There was a multiplier where a calculation was done for the match to the peak and that like using trackers and so forth really added to that at that time. Was that something so, being asked for by the utility or something that you guys injected as a part of the sales both, process? Both. So we were involved from a, a policy and a design standpoint uh-huh. by understanding the cost structures. I was an expert witness uh, back in 2001, 2002 for the industry and the distributed rate making proceeding here in California. And so we, both myself, Howard, Wenger, Tom Stars, and many other people really rolled up their sleeves, Les Nelson, and really engaged not just California, you know, I personally testified in Hawaii and in DC and many other jurisdictions to really advocate for the industry and really articulate the value we're providing the grid. But then when we're speaking to customers, that's a different perspective on why we're gonna be able to help solve their Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah, I'm gonna backtrack here. I was confusing, Howard Winger was your co-founder at PowerLight. Right, he was. He was uh, no, actually, it was Tom Dunwoody. Howard Tom came Dinwoody, in. Right. Howard okay. came in. Um, Tom. Tom was the name I was. For, I was trying to re- recall Tom's name. Yeah. So, and Howard Winger, until recently, was the president of SunPower. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So we. What had happened was we built PowerLight up. We had about an eighty percent annual compounded growth for uh, about ten years, and then at PowerLight. Yeah, ten years. It was actually eleven years, and we were. Actually, we were going to go public. We had an S1. We had run a process, selected Morgan Stanley. We were kind of going down that road. And the reason we were going to do that is that at the time, Germany was, had really taken off. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of strong companies in Germany. We weren't really competing with them yet, but they mm-hmm. were much better capitalized than we were, even though we had done the first 10 megawatt project and so forth. So we were feeling like we definitely needed some dry powder in our on our balance sheet, and so we were thinking about this, um, you know, going public. Uh, we were going down that road, and then we got, you know, basically an, an overture from SunPower. SunPower at that time was primarily a cell manufacturer. Mm-hmm. They made a little bit of solar panels. PowerLight was, you can think of it like the analogy would be to where Dell is positioned in the computer industry. They don't make chips, but they make systems and solutions. So at PowerLight, we were making roof systems, we were making trackers, and we were actually making solar panels too. Yeah. But that wasn't our core. So it was a perfect vertical integration merger. Mm-hmm. I think from everyone's metrics being the shareholders of both companies, customers of both companies, public sector people that had supported the companies, you know, everybody won. It was one of these, most mergers fall far short of the aspirations. And I think in this case, we significantly exceeded it. So it was a really good combination. We beat our plan uh, the, ne- the following year and the year after SunPower Systems Corporation in 2008 did about two thirds of the revenue of all of SunPower. So wow. it was awesome. Uh, SunPower, you know, then and to this day has, you know, the best solar cell in the industry mm-hmm. from a performance standpoint. Um, so it was a really great, it was, it was an opportunity for us also to sort of take a step back and think about integrated product design 
well, we, we always thought about that, but we were able to then be the, the manufacturer and essentially take a look at uh, a solar panel in the context of the overall system. And so when we think about systems, we think from you know, the very first mechanical element through the solar panel element and the inverter and designing you know, the panels and the, the physical structures to be co-optimized together so that the electrical and mechanical properties are achieved at the lowest possible cost with the highest performance gain. Now, what a lot of folks don't understand is the sort of uh, genesis of you know, the solar panels is, uh, was essentially from 12-volt battery chargers. Mm -hmm. So the reason you ended up with 36 and then 72 cell modules is that's the number of cells you put in to charge a 12-volt battery. Right. Yeah, okay. So, you know, when you're sort of like half a volt each, that's kind of where you want to be. So, um, okay, that was great then. Um, as we sort of thought about and really studied, you know, how wind forces work on trackers and, you know, I'm going back, you know, 15, 20 years here. And, you know, we did a bunch of wind tunnel studies and a lot of optimizations and then sort of converged on, you know, a format that's about two meters. And mm -hmm. so we drove, in the case of SunPower, we clean sheeted this 128 cell module, which is a, a beautiful product uh, still in their, their line, which is um, sort of a tracker optimized product. And so then- It's a single panel for- Yeah, yeah. it's like a 425 right. watt, yeah. probably more now because of their, their cell efficiency keeps yeah. going up. And then with, um, you know, the, the, the Asian producers, we really standardized on this two-meter format. So the industry at that time was on the 1.6. Yeah. So we were uh, one of the big um, uh, channels for, for uh, demand. Yeah. And so we really pushed to that format, which ended up being a 72-cell panel right. for, by and large. And we drove some other uh, things, uh, really championed the whole bifacial idea. Mm -hmm. And so back in 2007, we... We were developing a, a project, the Nellis Air Force Base mm -hmm. project, which uh, for many years was the largest project in the country. That's the 14 megawatt. Yes. Uh, yeah. President Obama MMA went there. And, yeah. Correct. Right. Yeah. We did a RFP, select an MMA to do the financing, if you will, and, yeah. and offtake. And well, no, the offtake we'd structured with the Air Force Base. But we deployed a couple megawatts of bifacial on yeah. that product, and it, the performance was just screaming. It was yeah. phenomenal. So, you know, these are the kinds of things we really want to drive. For, and the tracker was optimized around the bifacial, and, you know, but it's all around what's the customer need. I mean, lower cost energy. And, you know, so like those, that's been the consistent theme with the team we have here is like, we want to do a holistic, uh, I'm at the end of the day a product guy mm -hmm. and an ops guy. I like details. And mm. so we've been really focused on delivering a product that solves problems, that delivers value, and then, yeah. then getting the sort of um, operational excellence behind the product, which is super hard also. Uh, equally hard in its own right to deliver. So, for example, right now at Next Tracker here, we've got, you know, we're manufacturing and serving customers on five continents. And so it's like, you know, we've got, we're making parts all over the world that are targeted for certain markets, multiple lines, and but doing it in a flexible way that doesn't encumber us with a lot of um, fixed costs on our balance sheet, but working with partners and right-sizing our 
the part of our business with those partners so that we can have flexible supply to different markets as different markets come and go. Mm. So, for example, our here at Next Tracker last year, the domestic market was very strong. Right now, we're having a lot of growth on international markets, and you know we're able to serve those in a cost-effective way and also deal with issues that happen. You know, we've had every imaginable you know, natural disaster, storm, a tariff, a this, that, the other thing come in, you've got to be flexible and, and basically set up. So I think it's this theme through these companies is, you know, really focus on what the customer needs mm-hmm. and then really think about from a product guy standpoint, a product that's really optimized from A to Z to that solves that need, that's very practical. And then being able to just execute on that and do it with velocity and basically roll it out and be able to adjust to changing market conditions, which are often unpredictable at the time you started. I love that you are so, you're able to so concisely sum up 30 years of experience uh, into, into that package. As a, uh, as a young person in the industry who might be still trying to contemplate their first move out of their first job, uh, how, how did you know it was time to leave PG, PG&E where you had the safety and comfort of working in the transmission team? It's a good job. You could have stayed there a long time. We have, we have friends who have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, get, and strike out and start your own thing. How did you know? What was the catalyst? Yeah, so I just really fell in love with PV. So at the point I was managing um, this group at PG&E, we were doing PV, we were doing solar thermal, we were doing superconducting magnetic energy storage, we were doing fuel cells, we were doing EVs, and we were doing batteries. So we were doing all that. We were doing like real hardware test, detailed measurement, and writing reports and stuff. Um, so I just, you know, from the get-go when I learned about PV, I fell in love with it because it's got new moving parts and it mm-hmm. has no fuel. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else that does that. So I just really fell in love with it. The first thing I really did in the solar industry was um, uh, we put forth the hypothesis that a strategically sited PV system in the grid would provide a lot of value to the grid. And so we called it grid support. So I wrote probably 25 papers on that with a number of the folks we've talked about on today. And then we built actually empirically this um, 500 kilowatt system, which sounds puny, was actually, I think, the largest system built in the decade of the 90s in the United States. Wow. But in any event, we built that, we put it in the grid as part of this PVUSA national experiment, and it actually worked. We measured it, provided value to the grid. So for me, it basically comes down to just being passionate about something. I like really love solar. I, I was excited about it. I thought we could move the needle forward and deliver a range of products. I wasn't exactly sure you know, I remember the conversation with my wife because I'd done well at PG&E in the five years I was there. And, you know, we had a young family, growing family at that point. And, yeah, it was like, wow, do you really want to leave this? And I was like, yeah, because, you know, that's the time I think people should take risk. And, I'll, you know, starting a business and having it go under is not a failure. And you started PowerLight at 26, 27? Tom right? Dinwoody founded PowerLight okay. in 1995. I joined with him very, very sure. early. I mean, there were like, it was me, Tom, and another engineer. Right. And so we were literally in a one-car garage. Right. And we built it up. And, uh, you know, I think 
the first project was a three kilowatt system. <laughs> Think about that, three kilowatts. Yeah. So Tom that's and I- my, That's exactly the size of my first project. Oh, well, there you go. So yeah, we, so uh, early 96, I joined with Tom and it was really, I mean, it couldn't have been more bare bones. I mean, really like the most, uh, we were in a one car garage wow. that was, we were renting for $300 a month. Wow. And then we basically, we just went at it yeah. uh, with, with passion. Were, were you selling projects at that time? You were, you were just competing trying to sell solar to end customers commercial industrial customers well i think you know one of the things just reflecting on your earlier question too but also to answer this is you know to succeed i think you just have to do a couple things and you have to like either one thing or two things or three things but not more and you have to do them really well you have to be mm. best in the world at it so at that point solar was predominantly off-grid mm -hmm. and on-grid solar was a lot of residential. And we didn't want to do that, and that wasn't my background from PG&E. Uh, we were like large power guys. Yeah. So when we set out, we basically set out to be number one in the world at large-scale power systems. And so we really focused our product efforts on that, and uh, then we focused on, uh, uh, we did do some development. We developed the California Valley Solar Inch deal, which was 310 megawatts. Still big today, but that was way big yeah. in 2008. Yeah, and so uh, that was an awesome project. And that would have been a, then now a, as part of Sun Power Systems, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah, but it started it started prior to the the merger. Yeah. So your focus on uh, starting Powerlight coming out of uh, PG&E, if I'm hearing you correctly, was I believe in this technology. I can't I can't grow it from inside of the utility. I'm gonna go build a company that will proliferate this technology throughout the world. And I'm gonna do it by providing large scale power systems. That's right, okay. that's right. And, and innovative product design. So the first product we had, Tom invented, it was a, uh, a roof system, which was a lightweight penetration free roof system called PowerGuard. I install a lot of it. Okay, there you go, so you know all about yeah. it. So that was an awesome product mm -hmm. and Tom was an architect and um, is an architect. He's also got a mechanical and structural engineering yeah. background. He's ridiculously For anyone smart. listening and wants to see it, you can see it on the roof of the Moscone Center from Google Earth, and it's a beautiful product. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah so we did a lot of those. And then, you know, I had had this whole legacy in trackers. Yeah. Um, and so we were at that point spending, so we looked around and we're like, I mean, there was like no market. You know, the costs were in those years, dollars call it 10 bucks a watt, and in today's dollars call it, you know, 18 bucks a watt, right? Yeah. So we were off by like an order, one to two orders of magnitude for making the numbers work from a, even connecting on the customer side of the meter. So we started stacking benefits in order to figure out how to create a value proposition for customers where they made money. Yeah. It wasn't a greenwash situation. Yeah. So when we, at that point in the mid 90s, uh, we were looking at in Hawaii, they had a state solar tax credit and we had also competitively won uh, a federal incentive rebate program uh, called, uh, it was the Team Up Project. It was in, um, funded by US Department of Energy. It wasn't like big dollars, but it was enough. It was some co-funding. 
So when you added that up with the accelerated depreciation and the uh, investment tax credit, what we did was, you know, and I personally spent a lot of time structuring these operating leases. So we, we actually mm. structured operating leases so the customer would have nothing out of pocket. Depending on the term of the lease, they would have either um, a positive cash flow or a, an affordable negative cash flow for some period of time, but after right. which they would own the system. So we started structuring those deals in the 90s, uh, got those done, and we just sort of like kept bootstrapping and we were kept the, the OPEX low, you know, the operating costs of the company low. Right. We, we want some R&D funding and then we just kept innovating and, but operating very responsibly. So, you know, if we're speaking to a young person, the thing, um, I, I had a, gave a, a lecture at the Clean Tech Open uh, last week or two weeks ago. The thing I really stress, you know, three most important things about the business are cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. So you can have the best idea in the world, but, you know, if you run out of money. That's right. A, that's the worst time to go back and ask for money from anybody. You know, you're probably going to close the door on the business. So we try to be very responsible in terms of paying as we went. And also, I really like businesses that are capital light, not mm -hmm. capital intensive. If it's capital intensive, find someone else that's making the thing you need <laughs> in order for you to use it yeah. and help them by bringing them more volume, but where you don't have to go pitch some investor, you know, if only I had a million or 10 million or 100 million or $500 million to build this plant that makes this part, we would dominate, you know, the world. Right. That's not a story I want to like tell her here. Mm. So, you know, Okay, there's some capex involved to evolve something, but you really want to leverage existing industrial infrastructure when you're in a startup phase and have a low capital intensive model and be able to quickly start getting a product to market and then getting customer feedback and then evolving it and innovating as you go. So that's always been our approach to um, you know, product development. Yeah, well, and along that line, uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, I think folks who know you were not surprised when you uh, came to Solaria because they understand that you're a product guy. Um, coming out of SunPower, obviously, like you understand the modules. But Solaria uh, at the time was troubled. They were trying to figure out where does their product fit in the market, how to get it scale. And it fits in the latter category of the kind of business that you don't want to go ask your investors to fund, right? I need $500 million to build this plant so that I can bring this uh, innovative technology to market that, um, that we have to figure out how to, how to uh, actually bring crews to build, right? So Larry was a, a, a great product probably ahead of its time. My question is, I remember, I was at Trina at the time, I remember uh, the president at the time of Trina getting invited to a cruise that you had on the bay. I don't know if you remember this, yeah, but you were, you were touting this next great thing called Next Tracker. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, I don't know what the heck Next Tracker is or why Dan is now focused on a tracker, but this is going to be a thing because Dan's behind it. Why did uh, Next Tracker become the focus of, uh, not that Solaria has gone away, it's very much still a company, but why did Next Tracker become a thing? Why did well, here's the story of how that worked. So I, we had had this amazing combination with SunPower from PowerLite. I ran that, had the privilege of running that as president for 
uh, couple years. I stayed past my commitment time. I was still excited about the company. Um, but I had been burning for over 20 years. I needed a break and my, you know, my dad was sick and my son was going, transitioning from uh, high school to college and stuff. So I wanted to spend some time with my family. So I took a sabbatical from SunPower and um, they left me on the website. I could have gone back. Um, it was a great company. I've, I've got nothing but good things to say about SunPower. And, um, but I, I couldn't get excited about going back to basically a job I had done for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to try something new. So on my own accord, I went to the SPI show. I guess it would have been 2009. Mm -hmm. And I kind of looked around at what was happening and nothing, not a whole lot was exciting me. I'm not saying there wasn't a lot of, there's not a ton of exciting things happening. It just wasn't biting, you know, uh, with me. But this Solaria thing, so they had developed this technology then that you could take, let's talk about a 72 cell module. At the time, those modules were about, call it 300 watts. And the cell was 75% of the cost. Right. So they had this low concentration module, which used all the same materials as a standard module, you could make the same amount of power, but only use 32 or 33 cells. So the numbers just like, no matter how you slice it, the numbers look great. And so I got really enthralled with the technology. I talked to mentors of mine, like Dick Swanson, who actually founded SunPower. I'm like, Dick, look at this, what do you think? He's like, wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And talked to reliability guys, it was really exciting. So anyway, the next thing I know, um, I'm back in as um, CEO of that company, and yeah, we needed to raise some money. I'm fighting for my life to keep that thing alive. And uh, we actually uh, built the largest low concentration PV system in the world. Uh, we had developed a new product quite quickly. It works, the, the intrinsic technology is there. Um, but the timing was atrocious because mm -hmm. essentially what happened is uh, a, about a year after that, you had this huge recession go down in Europe. Europe had been 85% of the market. Italy was your big market, if I recall. For Solaria, it was, but yeah. the for the industry overall, mm -hmm. like Germany and right. so forth. So yep. Europe went from, like, call it 85% of the market to, like, 15% of the market within, right. like, four years. At the same time, the Chinese were scaling by an order of magnitude. So, and then there, we ended up in this oversupply situation. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with this, like, you know, module pricing went from, oh, over that period, call it roughly two bucks a watt mm -hmm. to, like, 70 cents a watt or something within like 18 months at the time we had just finished commercializing this amazing solar panel so what happened was so while we were doing that the optics of the solaria panel required a tracker yeah having designed and built trackers from the ground up and licensed great trackers uh, from from other people previously i didn't want to do a tracker mm -hmm. we did, definitely did not want to do that so we went to some of the leaders in the industry we said, hey, we really don't want to do a tracker. We'd rather work with you guys and sell your product. Um, there are some good companies there, but we just couldn't get a relationship where we could get, you know, basically affordable price, performance, and service that we needed to be able to succeed. So what was happening was we were selling these Solaria panels to our customers, and then we were recommending tracker companies, and then the customer experience left something to be desired. So. We ended up just biting the bullet, even though we really couldn't afford it at that point. We said, okay, we're just gonna clean sheet a tracker. So uh, we brought Alex Allon, who had come from um, uh, Akina and 
uh, SPG who's um, like 17 levels above anybody I've ever worked with <laughs> from this standpoint. So the, the amazing thing about this guy, I've worked with people, I've worked with teams that have all the, the skill sets he has, but never all in one head. <laughs> and when you do that, the um, amount of efficiency you gain is amazing. Yeah. And so he also had some great manufacturing partners he had evolved relationships with that kind of got it and, and helped us. And so we commercialized at blinding speed, you know, some tracker technology. My thing was having done trackers for 20 years, at that point we had done 500 projects. I said to the team, I'm open to any design we come up with. I only have one requirement. It has to be an individual row. It has to be individual. Everything activated. works on individual, yeah. It has to be. Yep. Because we had really commercialized the link row trackers. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually, we didn't actually invent it uh, when I was at Powerlight. It was actually, I, we had our own tracker. We had a previous to Powerlight uh, with another, another company. I developed an individual row tilted tracker, mm -hmm. but it was too expensive. So we actually licensed the linked row tracker from an awesome, awesome entrepreneur and engineer named Jeff Shingleton. And uh, we'd been working with him in the 90s. We commercialized his design at Powerlight and some power, it was originally T0. Now, the, that was the genesis of currently the, the Oasis Sun Power product. And so that worked out great. So we built a ton of these. They work. Link Pro trackers work. Uh, they're reliable. There's nothing wrong with them. But they come with you know, a variety of constraints. You know, you have to, all the rows have to be at the same angle, generally. Right. Um, they, uh, you know, in the east-west direction, the land's got to be, there's constraints with the land grading. I don't like grading land as, as a hardcore environmentalist. I think right. that's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, we need products that are flexible to terrain. Um, and often what happens is when you're out there in the field trying to build, um, something was missed in the survey and the original design, and so the crew's moving forward, and then they come into an obstacle like, oh, gee, there's like a buried pipe in the ground, or the fence was missurveyed, or there's, or there's a tree in the wrong place that you can't cut, or a utility pole. And so forward momentum stops, and that's what kills your profitability on jobs. And so then they're calling back. I mean, I had managed at SunPower and PowerLite uh, basically all of supply chain, so <clears throat> you know procurement, uh, logistics, RMA, all that, uh, but also design. So we and we had all disciplines, architectural, structural, mechanical, electrical, CAD, blah blah. So what happened would be, on these big projects, forward momentum would stop. They call back to the design team. Hey, yeah. we need, and then from supply chain, it's like, well, we have too many parts or not enough, and blah blah. So what we wanted to do is create a product where each row was essentially its own power plant, and the guys in the field would then be empowered, like, okay, move it, you know north a meter or south a meter or left or east or west. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to have a flexible product there and also have unencumbered access through the roads because I also ran the operations team. We, again, going back to the mid-90s at Powerlight, we built the first SCADA system in the solar industry. So we had these like old school dial-up modems with twisted pairs and calling <laughs> in. And originally it was on this one engineer's like little uh, desktop in her office. And eventually we built racks and so forth and so we ran operations and the, the basically the, the the biggest complaints we were having from customers is they want to be able to drive through the fields yeah and it, for vegetation management and cleaning and uh, and service and so forth so anyway we, we decided we're going to lock and load on this individual road tracker 
And so we did that. And then we sort of incubated it for about six months. And then what was happening was Solyndra had gone down, all the financing for new solar module technology had basically evaporated. This was like 2011. We couldn't get additional financing for Solaria, even though we were sold out at that point and the company was doing, doing well. But the tracker business started growing organically. Yeah. So we engineered a classic spin out where essentially we compensated shareholders from the original company in a way that was you know, fair to folks and approved by, by the board. We then had a separate company, completely independent of Solaria, and then we started building this tracker thing. And so what happened was the former CEO of Solaria, Suvi Sharma, came back to that role as CEO. Mm -hmm. Solaria actually has interestingly pivoted. They used the core technology for ascribing and singulating cells into smaller cell pieces that was in the original LCPV module, and they have a very interesting high power module. Right. So Solaria is alive and well and yeah. doing very cool stuff there. But we then started running with Next Tracker and we had a, a pretty ferocious growth. I mean, we essentially did like a couple megawatts and then the next year we shipped over 200 megawatts yeah. and Amazing. then, you know, well over a gigawatt the following year. So yeah. we've got, you know, today we started the company in Q4 of 2013. So 2014 was our first year for a couple hundred megawatts. We've got over eight gigawatts actually deployed now and we just finished a strong quarter and the company's doing doing quite well i have so many questions i feel like i could interview you for two hours and i definitely have a part of the interview i think that folks are going to want to hear from you on and i'm leaving questions on the table here i mean you've done a lot of remarkable things in extractor recently you're voted one of the best places to work in the bay area congratulations on that that's definitely not in the bay area not an easy accomplishment there are so many great companies um, and it's a place that people come from all over the world. Uh, how do you, as a CEO, think about and institutionalize a culture that engenders this type of an award? Well, I, I really think there's so many aspects to you know, creating a culture that is empowering for people. Um, we spoke originally about the story where I expressed an interest in playing guitar and my dad made that available. If folks express an interest in something, and let me just freewheel off the top of my head. Uh, two years ago, we had one of our accounting staff come in and say, hey, I really want to get my CPA. Um, you know, it's a couple thousand dollars for me to like get the study materials and these courses. Can you guys help? That was like the easiest yes I ever, right. you know. And, uh, you know, the whole battery initiative, our CTO became very excited about what we have going there. We yeah. um, have been what's that called the the new product that you have uh, batteries? nx fusion plus NX fusion, right. and so we have an amazing thing happening <laughs> on storage and yeah. integrated also with our software yeah and so that was an easy yes to support um that excitement and the enthusiasm so i think supporting people i think um one of the you know it's hard uh but you you want to create an environment that encourages people to take appropriate and measured risk yeah. and then th where they don't get beat up if it doesn't work out. Yeah. And so you just have to have that ecosystem. It's okay and you have to constantly remind people, hey, we went into this with our eyes open. We tried something, it didn't work. That's okay, we're gonna take, we're gonna clean it up. We're gonna totally stand behind whatever we've committed, then some, and we're gonna move forward. And that allows innovation. I think also we're, um, 
we share a lot of information with employees. Uh, so, you know, we have all hands meetings. We talk about financial results. We talk about technical things we're working on. Updates are shared, like sort of around, you know, frequently in a variety of forms about everything we're working on. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's hard, you know, is also pulling back, like if, you know, strong personalities in meetings and, you know, I'm always trying to get better at this. I know I'm not good at it. It's a work in progress for me, but pulling back and letting letting the best idea win, it shouldn't be mm -hmm. about the strongest personality. Yeah. And that stuff's hard. And then, you know, we like having sort of cool, open workspace thing. You know, we like having picnics. We like having a work physical scenario that Not exemplifies our environmental values. So yeah. we chose our building is right next to the Coyote Hills Regional Park, uh, which is you can walk through across the street. Yeah. We have bikes here. We 45 charging stations. Yeah, we have a lot of, do, really? Do you we have do, that yeah, many? 45. I, I counted them. Yeah. Wow. I didn't <laughs> Car charging realize. Stations. How did that and happen? They're, and That's they're, crazy. And they're full. They're, I mean, there's a lot. They are. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing we did, originally I was driving the only electric car here. I, I, I'm a huge electric car, uh, solar-powered electric car proponent. Yeah. Been doing that for over 15 years. But we actually, I don't think we've talked about it publicly, but we also have a, uh, an incentive program for people to switch to EVs. So we, oh, cool. on top of the other incentives, we provide a nice. incentive that helps folks either get a, either rent or, or purchase a car that they can plug in. Yeah. And so, and then we have the solar field. So early in my career, we built this PVUSA project yeah. when I was at PG&E and with the U.S. Department of Energy. For So we have adjacent to our facility a three-acre solar center of excellence yeah. for Actually, originally it was for helping EPCs and customers explore best practices for installation methods, and there's no one right way to do Precisely. anything. But you know, here's our ideas. I've learned a lot from customers coming and building. We can then train their crews and so forth. We have all the equipment and stuff. But then we also have we're flying some of the best, most innovative. Uh, like we have a, a three different bifacial modules out there. We have integrated string inverters. We uh -huh. have our next-gen tracker products yeah. out there. We're flying, and then customers can go out, kick the tires. It also provides a very hands-on facility that our engineers can go out and actually physically see, and we, when we try new parts, they can try them in the field as part of our form-fit function, our reliability and quality testing program. But then the, the final benefit is that we're generating a lot of power that we're using for our, our building and for our cars. Fantastic. And so the other th nice thing about the cars is that the traffic's gotten really atrocious because the economy's so strong in the San Francisco area and EVs have a commute lane. The other thing we did just as an amenity for, for the staff is we have these van pools. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was surprising how that nicely that took off. So mm -hmm. we, uh, the way it works is very simple. So one employee is responsible for the van. It's like, do you want a free car? Yeah, oh, wow. great. Okay, well, they're responsible for it, and then they self-organize. So we have these, uh, I think we have eight or ten of them now where there's a van. There'll be three to six people that come. They self-organize. They come to a place. They drive the van. That also reduces the amount of parking spaces mm -hmm. we need, significantly reduces the carbon input. The van has Wi-Fi in it, and then it also encourages people from different departments that may not be working together. Oh, right, cross-pollination. To cross-pollination. So great. that's another just transportation. So we try to like, I mean, we're not Google at those yeah. kind of margins. Yeah. You know, the industry is very competitive. Mm -hmm. I know, that's that's what I marvel at. I mean, I know the in margins in this industry. But yeah, so but like the van thing, that if you contextualize that 
on the you know cost per employee, that's really low. I yeah. think probably if I think about what that costs us on an annualized basis, that's lower cost than losing you know one or two employees a year mm. that are key. Right. And so we want to you know really invest in people. I think the other thing is wow, that's a really interesting metric. I don't think I've ever, ever heard anyone put it that way. Right, it's lower cost than losing a key employee because you don't. Provide I think it. I'm. In this category, which is one of our four key things, it's easy to provide lip service to it, um, but you know we, we try and uh, we try to measure um, how we're doing. One of the things I like to measure is is how high our turnover rate is. Yeah. And so you know it should be really really low. Yeah. Really low, and it is. And so well, is there an industry average for solar? Um, I don't know. I think that's a, a good question. I think we probably should. To see if we can find a benchmark. I don't know if that would be easily accessible for solar specifically, yeah, but I know we're lower than um, other industries in our area significantly. Mm -hmm. So it's okay if somebody moves to Michigan because their spouse became a tenured professor or yeah. something, and that's yeah. a good move for them. Or, but you know, we should provide opportunities for mobility within the company and growth. And we're doing we do management training and coaching and things like that. I know we can do much better at these things, yeah. uh, but it's a work in progress. But I think also it comes down to the process we go through every year is it's not fancy it's very basic here's how but in terms of aligning with the vision mm -hmm. and the mission and the objectives here's how we do it we do an off-site with the executive staff uh, once or twice a year um, it's often been in my dining room at my house or equivalent and we talk about first of all what's the you know meta vision of the company yeah. You know, and we really wanted to, you know, mainstream large-scale solar. We want solar to be the number one form of power being generated. Okay, big, hairy, audacious goal. It's astonishing how far we've, as an industry, come on that. Okay, fine. That's why we exist. Now, what are we setting out to do this year? What are we trying to do this year? Um, I remember when we were going into 2014, you know, or no, we were in 2014. I think like the next year for 2015, we said, oh, we want to get a gigawatt done. And that was just like a crazy huge number, you know, coming off a couple hundred megawatts. We actually significantly exceeded our goal. And so it's like, what's our metric set? Well, we want to do that. We want to, I can't remember exactly what the, but we want to have like three big or four big things we wanted to get done that year. And so when we were thinking year ahead, you know, when we're at the end of the year looking backwards, what would we feel good about having accomplished? I think it was also we wanted to basically get to cash flow positive for 2014, and we we did that actually, and so um, and that was like a you know big startup year for us. So then, basically, okay, we have sort of a plan, and then we did a we do a SWOT analysis, a strength, weakness, opportunity, threat, and you know so eyes open. Then we come back and we report all that to the company. Everyone in an all-hands meeting. Hey, we went off-site. This is what we talked about. This is what we came up with. Sorry you couldn't all be there, but you know it had to be a manageable size. Here's what, here's what we're setting out to do. We just share it off with, with staff. Then it's like we break it down and say like, okay, now what are we going to do each quarter? And I think having a quarterly cadence is really a good thing. So even before we were part of a public company now with Flex, our parent company, which we merged with uh, a little over a year and a half ago, we wanted to try to run the company to a public company standard, mm -hmm. uh, meaning from an accounting and finance standpoint and hygiene of our transactions, our data, our NDAs, all that stuff. 
So then we broke it down these quarterly milestones, like, okay, well, what do we want to do this quarter? In fact, I just, we just finished this uh, a few days ago for this coming quarter. And then we have corporate metrics, and then we have individual ones. And then we have people, essentially each department has their one-page sheet that says, this is what I'm doing this quarter. Then each employee has their own. So we do a scored system, half is corporate, half is individual employees. And then at the end of a quarter, what this really does is, First of all, the score is used for variable compensation. And so I think that really aligns people to results. And you provide these additional you know, bonus or whatever you want to call it, variable comp, on top of their base salaries. But what it more importantly does is it engenders a conversation between the employee and their manager about yeah. um, this is what we're setting out to do. And then we also allow, if priorities change during quarter, you can change it up to the last month. And then when you look back, instead of doing these crazy annual reviews, like, geez, I can't remember what I did last year. Right. You sit down with these four quarters, it's like, oh, and here they are all scored, right. here's how I'm doing. And so, and we even like tape them up on the office. And you score them on a quarterly basis. We do. That's great. But it's one page. Yeah. And it's something that you should be able to knock out in an hour and sit down and have a conversation with your supervisor align and sort of stick and then move. Wow. And we also, in our executive meeting, we each department will sort of share, here's my top priorities, and then that's a way to get cross-departmental alignment. So as the business grows, you know, everyone doesn't know what everybody's working on, but that's our way we do that. Right. That's fascinating. Dan, I'm going to finish the interview today. I usually ask a question uh, that's a bold prediction, but... I want to give you a chance because I know that this week is a big week for sort of a new innovation within your product category. Tell me about Brightbox. Yeah, so a little over a year ago at Next Tracker, we had been focused on software in addition to the hardware solutions we, we have with our technology. And um, why? Because we think there was an opportunity to produce more energy and lower overall cost than some kind of simple set it and forget it type control system such as the type we'd been building for 20 years. So we had a software team and we're measuring key parameters of our tracker and we realized we needed to complement our you know amazing team that we had which were more control systems guys with machine learning capability. So we actually acquired a company called Brightbox that had developed amazing abilities to do analytics and learning about systems as they go. So we've been working together for over a year and it's been extremely beneficial to our business. We first used this capability for like rapidly accelerating the commissioning process on trackers. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of pressure when you commission a tracker because Usually there's not power on the site till the very end mm -hmm. and everything's coming together and the customer wants the systems commission and you have this, you know, giant field. It could be square miles of, of material and, you know, teams running through. And so what we wanted to do is speed that up and actually be able to, because our tracker self-powered from a little solar panel, is decouple the commissioning process from grid interconnection. Uh -huh. So because our solar, our tracker has a small panel with an integrated controller, speed that up. So as so, it's installed, you can begin commissioning. Exactly. Huh. And so initially we started working with the team to do this auto commissioning and also automate it. So it can be extremely fast. Uh, we're 
approaching an order of magnitude faster than we did when we started. Right. And I think we can take that down, you know, quite significantly. But then, you know, we'd really driven about how to get more yield out of the out of the trackers. So in the late 80s with my colleagues at PG&E, we had basically promoted this backtracker algorithm for panels right. for as they behave in the early morning and late afternoon. That got about 3% more energy. Yeah. So, you know, we we've known for a long time that conventional tracking with backtracking works well for an idealized site that's like very flat, perfectly installed and very very sunny, right. but is not the ideal way to track in the real world, which is undulating sites sites that have partially diffuse or heavily diffuse oh, conditions, over, yeah. combinations of those. So we've been working with um, this machine learning capability and we are launching at InterSolar uh, this next week a very exciting product called True Capture. Right. And True Capture will enable a typical solar power plant to generate two to 6% more energy over the course of a year, which is you know, a huge, huge number <laughs> for reducing LCOE. IPPs are, are cheering everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and it's more leveraging than that for certain classes of investors. And yeah. so we're really excited about that. It works using a combination of hardware and software, mm -hmm. machine learning, and enables trackers in these undulating terrains to be operating in idealized conditions also incorporates a, a forecasting and empirical measurement of irradiance conditions and row-to-row -row sensing smart module technology that evaluates how row-to-row -row tracking works and it can learn and improve over time also yeah. so we're really excited about this we've been spending you know more energy on the um, software side than we have on the hardware side we also have a lot of analytics. We have the um, integrated inclinometer, so we measure the exact angle of every row of tracker we have everywhere in the world, the state of charge of the battery, which doubles as a UPS system, and the motor current, so we can characterize the electrical and mechanical health of these systems. So that's, we've been able to leverage our, our parent company, Flex, with their connected intelligence backend, which is mm -hmm. a you know, rock-solid, secure network. Flex is a 200,000-person company. Wow. Um, so you can imagine the IT infrastructure there. So we're really excited to be launching that. And I think, you know, in terms of looking forward in the industry, I think it's going to be about looking back. There's been a lot of scaling, which has happened with on the panel side, on the tracker side, on the development side, and so forth. That's been great. But now it's going to be about wringing a lot more productivity out of systems uh -huh. as they're going in now and right. getting that, you know, incremental 5 to 10%. And that's where we're focused. Yeah. Always, always ringing the extra energy out of systems. Dan, you truly are a vanguard. I look forward to having you on the show again. I know that uh, the Suncast audience does as well. And uh, I want to say thank you for being the first interview in our Solar Pioneers series, folks who since the uh, last century have been carrying the flag of solar PV forward and changing our industry. So thank you for everything that you do, sir. My pleasure. I really appreciate your insights and great questions. Thanks, Nicholas. You're welcome, Dan. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the ax a little bit more, 
I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.